So we're going to turn the microphone on. And we'll go ahead. Uh, so why, why should you, why, why do we study the Bible? It's, it's not just to get that knowledge, although that's important, but really I think the ultimate gain, aim is to, to change our lives, to help us live the lives we want to live, the lives God wants us to live. And, and the tools, biblical knowledge is one of the tools to do that. We're going to see, and, and, you know, uh, and then also some tools, skills for how to read and how to interpret. There, there are things in the Bible, you know, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. And I say Hebrew poetry, it translates. Uh, there, we're going to look at, there'll be a later lesson when we look at prophecy and talk about prophecies that are actually fulfilled twice, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, dual fulfillment. And get new insights. And I had a friend who always ended his prayer with these three phrases I really love. He said, help us to know who we are, whose we are, and where we're going. And to me, that really puts a lot of stuff in perspective in the big picture. So, and, you know, we're going to look at the Old Testament. And I'll just, the preview is what we're going to see is things haven't changed. A lot of things have changed in the t time since the, the monarchy of Israel. But people haven't. There's people lie and cheat and they lust for power now just like they did then. So why study? Well, here's the first reason. We're told to. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, All scripture is inspired by God, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every work. What did he mean by scripture when he wrote? The New Testament had not yet been assembled. A lot of the books hadn't even been written, some of the books. So he, he's really, this has to include the Old Testament. It may include only the Old Testament that in terms of what scripture was. So Paul tells us, and then I found, there's a book I found interesting recently. This came out last year by a professor from Emory who says the Old Testament's dying. Why does he say that? He looks at, he, he gives kind of four sorts, kinds of evidence. We don't have a lot of knowledge of the Old Testament. He, analy he analyzes some collections that people put together and say, oh, these were the best sermons preached in the last 10 years or nine years. And he looks for how often the Old Testament appears in those best sermons, also its influence on musical worship, and then uh, the Revised Common Lectionary. That's not something we use, but a lot of mainline churches use it. It gives you a guide for every Sunday, and if, you, if, you, if your preacher preaches from the lectionary, you pretty much work your way through the Bible in three years. And he says it's diminished there. We won't talk about this one, but this is interesting. This is a Pew survey, religious knowledge survey. And, and I, we're not, just look at a few things. Of Christians, people who said, I'm a Christian, a third of them didn't know that Genesis was the first book in the Bible. Let me say it again. A third of them didn't know that Genesis was the first book in the Bible. Uh, more than that, didn't know that the Golden Rule is not one of the Ten Commandments. And you know, you can look at our New, Te New Testament; it's not a whole lot better. You know, you can see uh, we sing about the old little town of Bethlehem, so more people knew that. But for people who claim to be Christians, half could not tell you what the four Gospels were. So. Again, and this will be, like I said, you can, if you're interested in this, sign up on that list and I'll, we'll send out a link to the PowerPoint. Uh, there actually is a version of this online. 
instead of having 30 something questions it has 15 you can go online and I'll warn you this is not just Christianity though it's Judaism Hinduism Islam all this okay when you look at best sermons again compilations notice uh, whatever that adds up to 800 sermons or so almost 900 but he looked at things like how many Old Testament only New Testament combinations with let's just focus on this column the ratio of New Testament sermons to Old Testament is anywhere from almost four to one to two to one in these. So mo most of our sermons concentrate on the New Testament. Okay. Uh, now, when you look at those sermons and you analyze further, when we do look at the Old Testament, there are th about five books that get almost all the interest. And you get down to some of these books, Kings and Chronicles we'll be looking at, only got two hits each in this analysis. If you're Judges, Ezra, and First Chronicles, you only got one hit. And some of the, here's some books that got none. Ruth, Esther, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Haggai, Zephaniah. We're not mentioned at all in these 400 best sermons. So we don't, and uh, you know, if Randall could hold up his Bible and go to Matthew and then the Old Testament, and you'd find about 80% of the writings we have are Old Testament. We don't use them. What about our hymns? The, the, hymn, the hymn book of the Old Testament is the Psalms. And about 40% of those Psalms are songs of lament, of sadness. There are some that are songs of complaint. But here's what this uh, fellow Towner said. Contemporary hymnists and hymnals prefer to celebrate God as creator and thank God as liberator rather than to lament to the God who listens. Anybody remember singing a lament here at Otter Creek recently? Uh, and then he puts it even kind of more direct. He said, somber doesn't sell. We prefer to sin, repent, and lament, and die in silent privacy. So we don't, we don't reach back to the Psalms for those. Here's a couple more comments in the book. It says, the current fashion of thought, Old Testament, Interesting to the historian, the literary critic, the archaeologist, but little serious value for the life and thought of the modern Christian. What relevance is it? He said, not merely is this subject neglected in biblical teaching, it's almost entirely forgotten. So, why do we avoid it? Well, the first reason, and again, if you're preparing to teach on the Old Testament, this comes home pretty fast. <laughs> it's a slow read. You know, there are these genealogies that go on. And, I mean, go back sometime and read the instructions for building and equipping the temple. It goes on for chapter and chapter and chapter. I mean, uh, it's, like, it's like this was written not for us, but for the builder. You know, to tell them exactly how to do things. There are dietary laws that are strange. Uh, you know, okay. Also, it, it describes a very different world. This world, uh, there's violence, there's polygamy. It should be a talking snake, not snakes. There are weird food laws. It's just a very different world that, that we don't understand and sometimes have trouble associating with. And sometimes we don't particularly like the God we see in the Old Testament. And we're going to address that. Is, is, is God different in the Old Testament? Are people different? How do we understand how God acts with those people back then? Now, I found this quote very telling. Uh, 
Vischer says, tell me what you'd strike from the Old Testament and I'll tell you what the defect is in your Christian knowledge. I thought that's an interesting comment. Okay, and just finally, you know, a couple more qu quotes. You know, the New Test Old Testament ceased to function in healthy ways as sacred authoritative canonical literature. Uh, so we prefer, many of us would prefer to do without the Old Testament for practical purposes, do exactly that by means of neglect and ignorance of it, whether in public, private devotion, public worship, or both. Uh, and, and here, this is from the author of the book. He says, you know, the Old Testament dying, as stark as it is, is not nearly stark enough. The Old Testament is dead is far more accurate. I don't know if I believe agree with that, but that's his view. So we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. A couple of notes. Uh, just I'm going to, I'll tend to use the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, I may occasionally use, there's a uh, Jewish, JPS, Jewish Publication Society version I may use occasionally. It's called, they call it the Tanakh. That's a Hebrew word for kind of a combination of Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, which is the law, prophets, and writings, which is how Jews generally divide the Old Testament. And, and in your study, this is one of the most important things about studying the Old Testament. When you see Lord in small caps, that's different from Lord just written out. It's a, it's a shorthand for the covenant name of God that's used in the Old Testament, which was written as four uh, consonants, no vowels. And we sometimes we render that as Yahweh. Uh, the ASV renders it as Jehovah. And the reason? That name was so sacred to Jews, it was too sacred to pronounce. So that instead of saying, if, you, if you're in a, if you ever go to synagogue and you hear them singing, you'll hear, you know, Baruch Adonai. And Adonai is the word Lord. And it's substituted for this YHWH. Uh, you know, it's, and, and how serious this is, my friend Arnie, who grew up, when, even in English, when Arnie was writing the name of God, he would write it like that. Because he said, for his synagogue, even in English, to write out G-O-D would be profane. So he wrote this way. Because it, the ho it's a holy name. But that came from the intertestamental. Right, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it, it, hasn't, it wasn't always that way but it's, it's carried on. And so just to note, if, if it offends you for me to say Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever, let me know offline and we'll avoid that. But anyway, so that's just some notes. And again, this is just so important when you're reading the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll run across it again and again. All right. No politics. We're talking... <laughs> now... I'll say no 20th or 21st century politics. We're going to talk a lot about 8th century and 7th century and 9th century BC politics. We're going to be all over that. And there's this temptation to say, well, that's just like Trump or that's like Clinton or that's like Obama. And, and I'm just, I'll make one statement. You know, I have politics and you have politics, and neither one of those politics is worth dividing the body of Christ. That's all I'm going to say. Now, this, this, this is something that's bothered me for, for a long time, is how we think about context, cultural context. And, you know, uh, 
we look at people in the past, and we've gotten really good about this lately, and we see everything wrong they did, and we say, oh, they're terrible people. We don't have any heroes. You know, we find a hero, uh, he owned slaves, he uh, was a an imp imperial, the, the governments of Europe, the imperial nature of those governments. We say, what awful people they were. So I'm going to give you a parable. So we're going to imagine that uh, the physics department at Vanderbilt has invented a time machine. And they say, well, we can go, you know, we, we can bring somebody back here from the future. So we go 500 years in the future and jerk this guy and bring him back. So, and, you know, we, we talk, we get to talk to him, ask him a lot of questions, we're talking to him. And I said, well, you know, I said, looking back over history, to tell me who the absolute worst people were. Who were you know, who caused more death, more suffering, more pain? Who was the worst? He turns to me and says, no. He said, I think he said, we're pretty much agreed in the 26th century. There's people in North America and the United States in the early 21st century. He said, all the evidence was there for global warming. Scientific evidence was clear. But they chose to keep driving their fuel inefficient cars, moving in their fuel inefficient houses, and wasting energy and contributing to global warming. Carbon dioxide went into the ocean, acidified the oceans up to the food chain, so people who were dependent on fish for protein all starved. So there are probably over 100 million deaths due to this. Now, is that, that going to be the case? I don't, it may not be, but it, it is a possibility. Now, how many of us, and I, I'll, I drove a fuel tank car, my wife has a hot pilot, so, so I can't say, I can't put on my halo. How many of us right now feel we're just awful, terrible people? And here's the thing that, that I, I think is true, is when you're in the middle of something, and that's the way your parents grew up, and you grew up, and your children are growing up, it's hard to step outside of that and say, what, you know, is, is this a really a bad thing or is it a good thing? It's just, it just is all around us and, and we don't look. Now, there are visionary people who look outside and see that. And, you know, in, in, in civil rights we see it. In, in colonialism we see it. In slavery, you know, William Wilberforce in England. You know, there are great people who, who who somehow are able to see past the culture and say, this is wrong. And those people are, are, are worthy of special honor, no question. But the question then comes, are, is everybody else worthy of condemnation? Uh, and, and I tend to say uh, we, we need to maybe give them a, something of a pass, not a complete pass, but we need to realize. You know, a lot, a lot of the colonial powers of Europe, when they sent out and tried to colonize, whether it's the, the Americas, Africa, the Orient. Some of those people went with the intent of saving the immortal souls of those people, of, of bringing them into a relationship with Jesus so that they wouldn't burn in hell for all eternity. And you may disagree with that interpretation, but it's not, I don't think it's a bad motive. Not everyone had that motive. 
a lot of Spaniards came, especially that's, anyway, it's not hard to be down on the Spaniards when you read what they did. But among those Spaniards who, who took gold and killed natives were priests who were trying to convert those people to, to Christianity. So when we look at history, and we're going to, you know, we have to think about that context, I think. We don't, I don't want to give people a free ride, but I, I want us to think about it and think about the fact that they lived in the context, the cultural, the social context they lived in. Any comments on that? Am I off base? Am I? It's a, it's a hard thing. But that's that's kind of the way I, I've come to look at it. We again, nobody gets a free. Yeah. I just want everybody to know that I've planted enough trees to cover everybody in this plant. <laughs> yeah. All right. But 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 again, uh, we, we need to. We always need to think. You know, how are, how are future generations going to look at us? And I, I'm used global warming. There may, there may be something else we're doing that people look back and say, could you believe the way those hateful people were? So I hope, I hope that those who come after us will be kinder to us than we are sometimes to those who went before. Anyway, it's a tough subject. It's not, that's, I don't propose that's a, the answer, but it's kind of my answer, I guess. Okay. Now... Here, here's the fun part. We're going to take a little quiz. Not, not written down, but we're just going to go through. Uh, see how, let you think about how much you know. When you look at the books of Kings and Chronicles, uh, one book just talks about the kings of Judah. The other talks about both kings. I mean, you, they, occur, they occur occasionally, but you don't... Uh, really, it's all about Judah. Which one has both sets? Anybody? 50% chance. <laughs> kings, right. Kings, kings, you'll read, you know, this so-and-so uh, became king when he was 22 years in Judah and reigned for so many years and died. And they have it for both Judah and Israel. When you're reading Chronicles, you only find that kind of stuff for, for the kings of Judah. Kings of Israel are mentioned because they influence kings of Judah. Okay. Run some prophets. We're going to run some prophets, too. So a bunch of, bunch of boys run into Elisha. And they make some comments to Elisha that don't work out well. Anybody remember what they said? Go up, you bald head. And what happens? Two she-bears come out, and the NRSV says they mauled them. I don't know if they killed them or not, but anyway. And again, they, this says go away, bald head, but I always remember the, what I had growing up. Go up, bald head. So men who are follically challenged, take it. Uh, Take take heart, Eric. Blessed be the word of the Lord. There you go. All right. Amen. Okay. When Saul, Saul is anointed king, he's out doing something. What's he doing? What's he looking for? Donkeys. His daddy's donkeys. And he and and Samuel runs into him and anoints him king. Okay. This is one we'll talk about. I just don't understand. We have the king of Israel and the king of Judah, and they're getting ready to go into battle. And uh, the, the king of Israel says to the king of Judah, you know, I'm just going to go disguised, but why don't you dress up in all your royal robes? Anybody remember who those were? Yeah, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And I, I want to say, how in the was Jehoshaphat? 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> to say, oh, you know, yeah, you, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, we're going after battle. I'm going to let you be the king. <laughs> you know, and again, put target right back here. Uh, uh, but it works out okay. But again, I, when you read stuff like that, I'm just amazed, you know. And we're talking about Jehoshaphat. Here we go. Anybody want to get? Everybody heard jumping Jehoshaphat? Uh, is there a scriptural basis? And the answer is, I, I really wanted there to be. <laughs> I want I want to stand here, and this is where we get the phrase "jumping Jehoshaphat." But if if somebody can find it, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll buy you lunch. But uh, I, I I tried hard and I couldn't find it, so we're left with I guess somebody just thought that alliterated nicely. We do. Can we ride in your boat? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Here you go. What, there's actually a woman in 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 the line of of royalty in Judah. Yeah. Hope I'm not giving it away by saying she was Omri's granddaughter. That probably gives it away. Oh, yeah, sure. That gives it away, doesn't it? It's Athaliah. And uh, the interesting, one of the interesting things, you know, I mentioned this thing, so-and-so became king when he was this many years old. He reigned for this many years. And he died and was laid to rest of his fathers. There's no formulaic summary like that of her reign. But nevertheless, she, is, she reigns for six years. Uh, her son... She's a real, she's a real good one. She tries to kill all her children, and but one son gets away, and and hides out for six years, and then he's he's made king. But uh, anyway, another one of these charming people we meet, and the kings, uh, some scoundrels. Okay, okay. From what monarch did Solomon receive 120 talents of gold and a great quality of spices, quantity of spices and precious stones? Queen of Sheba. And I was going through here. This this phrase caught this passage caught my eye. It says notice the last part. He says he gave her of his Solomon's royal bounty, but he also gave every desire that she expressed. Kind of R-rated here in the Kings. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, yep, he was. We we could go forward with that in, in present times, and there's some examples we can cite of. But apparently. Gave little Queen of Sheba a little more than money. Anyway, so uh, and, and that's a great story. I have a, I have a good friend from when I lived in Oklahoma, and this lady used to give Bible class on this, and she would dress up as the Queen of Sheba. It was really great. Uh, okay, this David is a monarch that really just stands out, and he was in camp with these men one night. They're on the run. They're fighting with the Philistines. And David said, oh, I wish I had a drink from the brook. I don't know if it's Kidron, but some, the, whatever brook. And what it has been, go and fight through a Philistine camp and bring that water back to David. And what does he do? Pours it on the ground. And, 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 and this is the poet that writes the Psalms. So he doesn't just pour it on the ground. He said, the Lord forbid I should do this. Can I drink the blood of the men who, who went at the risk of their lives? He says, this isn't water, this is blood. You know, that great poetic uh, vision. Okay, here, here's a good one. What two kings might you run into when buying wine? You should... Some of you may have been scared to answer this. 
But in wine bottles, a standard wine bottle is 750 milliliters. If you buy a three liter bottle of wine, that's four times as much, that is actually called a Jeroboam. And if you buy a four and a half liter bottle of wine, that's a Rehoboam. And, I, if, and again, if I'd known, I might... Somebody take a picture of that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but and uh, I, this is one of the things you're not sure you want to admit you know. If you're buying wine in that big a bottle, you know, you, there, there may be a problem. But anyway, that's a little place where the some of those folks, and, and I don't know how much this holds, but it's, it's a big one. So anyway, I thought that put that in for fun. What king's daughter was raped by her half-brother? David's, Amnon and Tamar. Again, we're going to see some families here. That I guarantee you whatever problems your family may have are kind of small compared to some of these folks. Okay, who's this? Saul is in a panic. He's about to go into battle. He's worried. He goes to someone, and he wants to raise the spirit of the deceased Samuel. Who does he go to? The witch of Endor. Call it, this calls her the medium, but uh, and that's a story we'll look at a little bit. What does David demand? Or Saul, David wants to buy Mary Saul's daughter, Michael or Michelle. I'll call her Michelle just to make her sound feminine. So what, is, what does Saul say? Okay, there's a bride price. What's the bride price? Anybody remember? A hundred Philistine foreskins. And David delivers. They, you know, when we read, you know, we think about David as this king, but you need to read about David before he came king, and this kind of band of guys he ran around with. Uh, they were they were some pretty rough characters, and they got into some pretty rough situations. So anyway, but that's that was what he wanted. Okay. What act did Absalom carry out to solidify his preeminence over his father David? And then after that, he was trying to escape from David, and what happened that prevented him from getting away? Okay. First one, he, he slept with his father's concubines to show that, uh, he says, you know, you have made yourself odious to your father. This is, this is kind of a landmark moment when he steps across a line where everybody knows you've done this, now you're, you're trying to take over. You know, David's not going to for you for this. And he, walk, he, he gets away, gets on his mule, and going, going through, through, the, through the woods, and he's got long hair. He gets his head caught, and he's left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule rode on out. And then Mr. Abner finds him, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, we've got one, two more left. Queen Jezebel, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, they're falling from power. Jezebel knows that they're coming to get her. And what does she do? Anybody remember? Paints her eyes, adorned her head, and looked out the window. She's a real nasty character, but she kind of had some class. Uh, yeah, you know, she's she's not going out looking bad. Although, it's now kind of related to that. She's she's looking to see, and you know, she's worried that somebody's coming to get her. And so she tells, they see chariots coming. She tells the sentinel to look out, and 
So she says, who, who is it? What's that chariot coming? Who is it? And the sentinel says, looks like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives like a maniac. <laughs> so, so, so Jehu would be fine here in Nashville, I think. So that's our quiz. Uh, if you miss some, I've, I've actually given this to a couple of preacher friends and folks, and everybody always missed some. But if you didn't miss any, guess what? <laughs> I'm stepping down, and you're, you're taking over. So anyway, that's our, that's our kind of quiz, and it kind of gives you an idea of some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. Let's just, we've got a few minutes left. I want to just briefly go through sort of the kings. Um, for a while, the kingdom was united. You know, Saul was appointed briefly his son is king uh what two years or so then david find you know and, there, and there's there's a lot going on here it's not it's not like one day saul dies and the next day david's king david is anointed and saul's trying to kill him it's it's like a soap opera but finally david becomes first king uh, uh he doesn't solidify the kingdom but finally he does uh then solomon takes over this is a, a well fairly smooth transition so Solomon takes over, and then after that, Rehoboam takes over, and for a while he is king, and then he, found, he ends up becoming king of Israel in the north, Judah. Okay, here, here we're going to go real quickly, all the kings we're going to look at. There's a color coding here. Uh, if they're in gray, they're bad kings. If they're in pink or whatever that is, they're, they're a pretty good king and the blue are kind of mixed so you can see the years of their reigns down here they don't line up real well but uh, a, lot more bad than good. a lot more bad than good and I'll tell you I'm gonna try to get a recording when I lived in Heidelberg the preacher there would have uh, you know like we used to have kids come up on Sunday night and he had a song and there there are people people who were five years old then who are now however old they are and they can still sing you every one of the kings of Israel. And Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Athaliah. They can sing all those kings of Israel and Judah in their 40s and 50s. So anyway, we'll be talking about all those folks, some a lot more than others, but we will try to mention them all. Here, here's this, this, there's a ton of information here, but it, it actually is a pretty useful graphic because it shows the kings of Israel down here on a timeline, or excuse, no, kings of Israel up here, and yeah, Judah down here. Notice Israel ends about, this is, can't see, it's 709 B.C., Israel goes off into captivity, whereas down here this kingdom goes to about 580 or so. And uh, again, I like, you can't take it all in now, but they even have prophets, the blue with the white bars are prophets to the nation of Israel. The red bars are prophets to Judah, and the uh, no, I'm, to the nations, and the yellows are prophets to Judah. So there's a, I like this because there's a lot of information on it in one place. And again, I'll send this out for you. So those are them. Rest of the world, things are going on. Sparta's founded around 900. Carthage 800. Uh, the Iron Age in Palestine begins more like a thousand, but that you know. Uh, the technology didn't move that quickly into Europe. It only begins about 800 there. Homer, the Iliad, is somewhere between 800 and 700 in the Odyssey. Rome's founded 753. The Olympics are going on. We add events. 
By 700, iron is in wide use in England. Uh, Greek sculpture and large scale comes in during the same time. So those are kind of what's going on in the rest of the world or other things. I've put together a tentative schedule and uh, I've actually I've actually put together PowerPoints for all of these so far. Notice there's an, uh, okay, Notice, if you notice on the list, we don't have a co-teacher. It's not because I didn't ask, I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> With, nobody wanted to do this. They're down hip hopping. Uh, anyway, April 1st, 8th, and 15th, I'm gonna be out of town. So we may need a, sub, we will need a substitute. And I'll just say, the other thing, if you add this up, this is a 17-week term. So I, I am not, uh, I will not be upset if someone wants to teach. Uh, April 1st is Easter. If you want to teach on something, teach and teach something totally different, I'm fine with that. Because I, uh, again, as I've been putting these lessons together, it gets kind of thin out here going through the rest of those kings. So, so again, it, uh, and, and, and again, even if you do teach on my schedule, by the time we get down here, we may be talking about something different. We might go into the ex exile a little bit or something to follow up. So anyway, that's kind of the preliminary schedule. Uh, so let's talk, just we got a few minutes left. Let's talk about the, you know, Israel doesn't start off with a king. They start off, how, how are they governed? What do we have in places, authority figures in, in Israel before the kings? Judges. Judges, right. Prophets had a certain authority. And family heads. Family heads, right. So, so we don't have a king. But back in Deuteronomy, all, we have this prediction. When you come into the land that the Lord your God, notice Jehovah your God is giving you, and have taken possession, settled it, you say, set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Notice immediately, Israel wants to be like everybody else. You may indeed set over a king whom, but it says you can set a king, but God is going to choose them. So all the way back in Deuteronomy. By, by implication, they, they missed the point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. God's design. Actually, I, I, I misspoke. God's design was there's going to be a king over Israel, but who is it going to be? It's going to be God. But he's, you know, he says, you're going to want to be like everybody else. Now, he says, but here's what I want to tell you that king has to do. He can't just do anything. He must not acquire many horses or return the people in e to Egypt. Remember, we're, these are people who God's brought out of Egypt. He says, you can't go back there to acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you may, must never return that way again. He says, so first, don't go back there. Don't get a lot of horses. Here's one that didn't last very long. He must not acquire many wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. How many wives and concubines did Solomon have? And I don't have the number of it. It was a bunch. Well, a lot. Okay. Silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. And then he says, finally, when he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priest. In other words, you're going to have your own copy of this law. The, the priest have it, but the king should have his own copy. It shall remain with him. He shall read in it all the days of his life. 
In other words, he, that king needs guidance. It's going to come from God. Why should he read? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of his law and statutes. And notice this for a leader. Neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment. And, and you know, it gets back to this idea we talk about something. God's ideal for the king was not that he was better than anybody else. He's part of the community. He said, you don't exalt yourself. So don't turn aside to the right or left. Why? So that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. Over and over we're going to see again, God says, you're going to be king, but there are conditions. We're almost done. In Samuel, uh, the people come to Samuel, who's seems to be, as a prophet, the person who has the most authority. They said, you're old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Sons are corrupt, not surprising, corrupt government. So says, appoint us then a king to govern us, and this key phrase, like other nations. And so Samuel gets upset, and they keep saying, give us a king. And here's God, what God tells Samuel. He says, listen to the voice of people and all they say. He says, they haven't re, you know, rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In other words, uh, it's, it's, God shows some compassion to Samuel here. He says, it's not your fault. It's not you, even though your sons are scoundrels. He said, it's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me. And it's interesting to me that God's going to let it happen. And you know, it goes on to solemnly warn them, show the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And what's the king going to do? This You'd think this would discourage him. He's going to take your sons and appoint them for his chariots to be his horsemen for a chariot. He'll appoint himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, make his implements of war. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. In other words, he's going to draft them. It's going to be like, kind of like Egypt. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He's going to take a tenth of your grain and vineyards and give it to his officers. Take your male and female slaves, the best of your cattle, donkeys, and put them to work. He'll take one-tenth of your flocks. So he says, you do you really want this king? You know, he's going to he says, and in that day you will cry out because of your king. He says, you're going to regret this. And this is kind of a harsh statement. He says, Jehovah will not answer you in that day. It's kind of, you've made your bed, you have to lie in it. I've warned you, I've told you all these things he's going to do, and you still want a king. Well, guess what? You're gonna, now, people come back, say, no, we are determined to have a king over us so that we may be like other nations, that our king will govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, Samuel listens to those words. He tells God, and God says, listen to the voice and set a king over them. And Samuel just says, everybody go home. So these are some questions. We're, we're, we're really out of time, but think about these this week. You know, why, why, why do they ignore, why, why do we sometimes, <laughs> you know, you know, going, you know, whether on a national basis or on a personal basis, there are things we do, and you know, we know before we start, it's not going to turn out well. You know, uh, why does God go ahead? Why does God give in to them? You know, and 
we'll get into next why do they get Saul? Saul Saul is one of the most interesting characters to me and how are we tempted to be like the nations around us okay and just just as a note quoting whenever I prepare a class I always look at this scripture uh, I take this seriously so if I say something that upsets you or causes you a problem with your faith you think let me know and let's talk about it because again this is serious stuff to be a teacher all right next week we're going to talk about Saul uh, interesting there's almost nothing about Saul in Chronicles than a lot in first Samuel so we'll We'll look at Saul, and, and again, Saul's an interesting figure, especially when you com compare Saul, who's labeled a failure, and David, who's, who's the model for all the kings to follow. And, why, and, and we're going to look at how Saul messes up and how David messes up and say, what's the difference? Why is one better? And I, I have some ideas, but I need some help. Okay, that's it. Thank you for coming. Uh, hope to see you next week. I'll get the list and send out... Uh, some information.